The, um, the passage that is under our study this morning is found in John 16, verses 5 through 11. That's what we're going to take a look at this morning. Uh, you find that, I, um, it really hurts my feelings that Landon makes fun of the way I dress. Um, I, try, I do all of my best shopping at Walgreens for my clothes, and uh, this is the best they have. Um, for those of you who are interested, uh, maybe not all of you, but a couple of you, um, my wife uh, is getting better. There is, uh, her last infusion was this morning, and um, the, the, she has been cleared to travel with me. She'll be going with me um, tomorrow, uh, both an infectious disease doctor and um, an internist has said that she can travel. So we're, I, I, I am thrilled about that. My wife, on the other hand, is, well... <clears throat> Now, you follow as I read this portion of God's word. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that word endures forever. Um, this This is one scared, sad bunch of men. Um, I know they're sad because the text says they're sad. And, and who can blame them? Um, it has begun to dawn on them that Jesus is, is leaving. And indeed, in a matter of hours, he will be betrayed and arrested and tried and, and then executed. <clears throat> they have no idea where he's going. They really don't care where he's going at this point. All they know is of their sadness and their fear. Um, They have no idea how traumatic uh, it will be the next 72 hours of their lives. But this much seems to have gotten through. He's leaving. Um, And he has told us what awaits us once he does leave. We will be dragged in front of rulers. Um, We will be persecuted and hated wherever we go. We're going to have to uh, take on the Imperial Roman Empire. And then we're going to have to contend on top of all that with, with Greek wisdom, with Greek philosophy. You know, it's like, it's like um, a bunch of soldiers whose general has just left them and the battle is about to begin. Um, you know, some 30 months earlier, they had been peasant fishermen with a tax collector in there. And now, now they're about to face all this. 
Guys, I, I, um, I don't want to try to overstate things, but this is not funny. I mean, you're not laughing, and I'm not trying to make it funny, but I just, this, is, this is for them. This is, this is a serious crisis. I tried to think of an example that would maybe parallel it. don't know that I did real well, but imagine you're a young mother of three and and your, your husband is about to die or is dying. And, and all you can think about is, what is the future going to bring for us? And then I come into the hospital room and I say, oh, it's okay. Everything's going to be fine. Really? Everything's going to be fine. Well, I, I, you know, I know that theologically you're probably right. But right now, I'm very sad and I'm very scared. That's what these guys are facing. And so at this point, Jesus is playing the role of comforter-in-chief. He's trying to tell them some things that might calm them. You can see it in verses 1 and verses 4, which I didn't read. But, but there's where he's talking. He's trying to prepare them. So, um, okay, Jesus, you want to comfort us? Um, what you got? Because we want to be comforted. Tell us, uh, what's your plan? What's your strategy? Okay, fellas, listen up. It is to your advantage that I go away. What? It is to our advantage? Are you crazy? What, what, what kind of, I mean, that's, that's, that's stupid. We don't want you to go away. We want you to stay here. What kind of comfort is that? Because you see, they think like we do. They're thinking, um, you know, what could be better than the last three years of our lives? Oh, yeah, there have been some, you know, some tense moments. But we've been fed, we've been saved, we've been cared for. What could be better than just him stay here and we just do this ad infinitum? And you're saying you're leaving and that's supposed to, that's supposed to be to our advantage? You know, the, 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 this same sentiment I, I, I run into occasionally, not a, not a lot, but a couple of times a year, I'll, I hear somebody say something like, and, and they speak very wistfully and longingly. They say, oh, how great it would be. If I could have just lived in those days when Jesus walked the earth, you know, and I, we could have seen him um, turn water into wine, and then I could have watched as he granted sight to the blind, and, and we could have seen him raise that little young boy outside the city of Nain from, from death back to life. Oh, gosh, I wish I could have. I wish I could have been there. I mean, because, you know, I think really... I would have been a much more devoted follower of Jesus Christ if I could have seen some of that. Well, not according to this, ladies and gentlemen. According to this, we're the advantaged ones. You know, the, the ones with no Jesus, we're the ones that are advantaged. Jesus tells these guys and thus tells us, that their future would be better, not worse, 
without him. That is, this is not a loss that you're going to experience, but this is going to be a net gain. This is not an evil that's about to occur. It's a good. What is, Jesus, what is a good? Well, that I am about to leave you. It is to your advantage that I'm, that I'm leaving you. How? How could that possibly be so? Well, let me offer two suggestions in answer to that question. He mentions one in the text, but the other, he's about to leave, and his next big stop is at a cross. He's about to be crucified, and it's there where he is going to merit the salvation of his people, and he's going to become, his finished work is going to become the basis on which the Father justifies sinners. That's, that's, we certainly don't want him to skip that. But the thing that he has in mind in this text um, is, is the commencement of an age. If I don't go, I cannot send the helper. But if I go, I can send him to you. He's, he's, he's talking about the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the universal, invisible presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. That is better than the physical bodily presence of Jesus Christ with the church. The Holy Spirit is about to come and he's going to take up residence within the hearts of believers and that's about to happen. In about six chapters in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, that's about to happen and when it, is, when it does, that will be better. The Holy Spirit's coming would compensate and even more than compensate for any loss that the church might sustain or think she sustains with the loss of the physical presence of Jesus Christ. Now guys, let me, let me pause right here and just make three quick applications based on what I've already said. First of all, could there be any better proof of the deity of God the Holy Spirit than these statements by Jesus? You know what deity means? That he's God. Uh, what the, God the Son is saying is that I'm going to be replaced and the one that's going to replace me is going to be better for you. What could be better proof of the deity of the Holy Spirit? God the Son replaced by God the Holy Spirit. But secondly, these guys did do better in his absence than in his presence. You know, guys, it is one thing for somebody to, for a man to speak, but it's another thing for a man to have God speak through that man. And that's what happens. That's what happens in Acts chapter 2. God uses these people in the power and the fullness of the Spirit, and 3,000 people are converted uh, in that first sermon. That never happened while Jesus was around. And then the other thing that I would think is a, just an application of what we've said thus far is this. The fact that Jesus says, I am going away is to your advantage, I think is a... Um, is a proof against the Roman Catholic idea of transubstantiation. If you know what transubstantiation is, that's that, that, that approach to the Lord's Supper that says 
that when I take the, 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 the bread and grape juice, I actually have Jesus' blood and his body in my mouth. Jesus is saying here that I'm going away. And he doesn't need to revisit because he has the Holy Spirit here to do his bidding. So this whole idea of him coming back every time the Lord is just militated against in this, this one little passage. But all of that said, ladies and gentlemen, the, the, the point is the Christian is advantaged. He is, we are advantaged by the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. Our comfort is that God the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within us. All which uh, largely is an unknown thing in an Old Testament saying. Jesus is going is to our advantage because the Holy Spirit has come. So that, that's, that's the first point of what I want to tell you this morning. But at this point, you have to pivot with me. There is a shift in the text. Okay? Whereas the coming of the Holy Spirit is a great advantage to the believer... The coming of the Holy Spirit is a horrible disadvantage for the non-believer. Let let me try to explain that. Guys, in one sense, the Holy Spirit should not be here at all. Um, Now, that might sound a little shocking, um, but I'm, I'm simply trying to make a point, guys. From the, from the vantage point of the world, Christ is the one who ought to be here. It was Christ whom the Father sent. And what did the world do with the one that God sent? They hated him. They, they got rid of him. They had, would have nothing to do with him. So Christ, not wanting his people to be orphans, graciously sends the Holy Spirit to them. But the Holy Spirit's presence, um, the fact that the Holy Spirit is here at all, is a reminder that the world has rejected and has kicked out the Son of God. The world stands guilty and the grand piece of evidence of their guilt is that the Holy Spirit is here and not the Son. Where'd the Son go? Oh, they they booted him out. And guys, that's the pivot in the text that you see at verse 8, from verses 8 through 11. Whereas Jesus is trying to comfort his people in the opening couple of verses... The Holy Spirit's going to come, take up residence, and y'all will be fine. But from verses 8 through 11, he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, which will be a horrible disadvantage to the world. Guys, um, the, um, what the Holy Spirit will begin to do is, is discussed in the text. When he gets here... What will he begin to do 
with reference to the world. In a word, he will come to convict. That's not a, that's not a good word. Uh, you ever been in a trial and you were convicted? That's bad. The Holy Spirit has arrived to convict. And, and the world doesn't want to be convicted. The world is very uncomfortable being convicted. And by the way, do not confuse conviction with conversion. Those are not the same thing. Guys, Billy Graham will tell you that 90% of the people who come forward in his, his crusades are not converted, but they are convicted. If you would like a couple of great examples of that, I was about to point to my wife, but my wife teaches four and five-year-olds in the second hour, and that's where she is. But if you, wanna, if you want an example of that, it would be my wife and her husband. We went forward at a Billy Graham crusade back in 1970. It was in Knoxville, Tennessee at Neyland Stadium. And guess, guess who was Billy Graham's guest that night? His name was Nixon, Richard Milhouse Nixon. The president of the United States was on the stage with Billy Graham. Susie and I thought, well, my goodness, she's up here for a weekend. The president's here, Billy Graham. Why don't we go? So we went. And there we sat and he preached and we began to feel a certain discomfort. And they made an altar call. And guess who went? Susie Betzelberger with her date, Jimmy Young. We got down on the, and I guess maybe the reason I, the real reason I went, I wanted to be on the playing field. But anyway, we got down there, and there's this woman with her little, her little um, clipboard. And she looks at us very sweetly, and she says, um, now why are y'all down here? Or is it for conversion or for recommitment? Well, we didn't know what either one of those words meant. But recommitment sounded a whole lot better than conversion. So we said, well, just put us down for those, one of those recommitment things. There was a, there was a measure of, there was a, there was a level of conviction, but it was not conversion, ladies and gentlemen. What is being described in these verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 is the work of the Holy Spirit in the act of conviction, not conversion. Well, how do you know that, Jimmy? Well, there's three things. First of all, you find the word in the text, convict, not convert. He's come to convict. The second thing that you see in the text is that he mentions the term world. He comes to convict the world. Ladies and gentlemen, if, if, if this is describing the work of conversion and the Holy Spirit has arrived to convert the world, and I say this reverently, he's doing a pretty poor job of it. But the other reason, ladies and gentlemen, the third reason that I would suggest to you that this is describing the work of his conviction, not conversion, is the order of those three words and those three indictments in the text. Do you see it in verse 8? He's come to convict, convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Folks, I submit to you that if he were describing conversion, 
those three words would need to be reordered. It would need to, if he was describing conversion, it would need to be sin, judgment, and righteousness. The Holy Spirit convicted him of sin in the day of judgment to come, and, and, but, but he moved to a position of righteousness. But that's not the order. The order is sin, judgment, righteousness, and judgment. Why would you need to tell a converted person about judgment? No, no, ladies and gentlemen, this is a description in this passage of the work of the Holy Spirit that is a work of conviction. So what the Holy Spirit will do when he gets here, he will carry on a work, a continuing work of Christ to expose the sin of the world. And then I want you to notice this in the text, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to notice the specific sin that is mentioned. He comes to convict the world of sin. And then in verse 9, it tells you the specific sin. And you see what's there. You know, when the world thinks of sin, they think of things like crime. What would be the first thing that, I mean, if, if you were directing things and you were going to convict the world, what, what would be the first thing that you would want to talk to them about? How about Marital infidelity. Oh, it's rampant. Well, it sure is. But is that what you see in the text? Uh, the thing that the Holy Spirit needs to convict the world about is, is uh, sex trafficking. That's a terrible global crisis. Oh, it is. It's a bad thing. It's ugly. But that's not what's mentioned in your text, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, uh, I'll tell you what's the, what's the problem. I got stung by a Ponzi scheme. Those people are wicked people. Yes, they are. But that's not in your text. I'll tell you, when I think of what the world needs to hear about, it's the whole idea of child molestation. Oh, that's awful. Yes, it is. But ladies and gentlemen, in the mind of God, the greatest wickedness among men is that they do not believe in Jesus Christ. That's what's in your text. My friend, if you are seated here this morning and you do not embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you know of what you are guilty? You are guilty of the most heinous offense that God could ever think up. This free offer of forgiveness to the undeserving, it's a trifle <laughs> to you. The idea that the Son of Man would die in the place of undeserving sinners, forget it. And without knowing it, the world is guilty of the grossest of sins. They do not believe in Jesus Christ. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the sin that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of. And then righteousness. 
the Holy Spirit brings a brand new standard of righteousness, a different, a different standard of righteousness, one that the world really doesn't agree with. It attacks because the, the standard that the Holy Spirit brings is the personal righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only righteousness that the world knows about is self-righteousness. And the idea that, that there's a righteousness of somebody else that, ought, that I've got to have to be mine, that whole idea is utterly repugnant. I don't need anybody else's righteousness. I've got my own. You know, guys, um, I've got to get my, my Bible down to do this. But there's a scene, there's a scene in Acts chapter 7 where um, Stephen you know, has been accused of blasphemy. And so they, he's dragged before a Jewish court, and the high priest asks him a few questions, and, and then Stephen begins to, to, to talk to this audience, and, and, and um, he, he gives them oh, 40 verses of Jewish history about Moses and the Exodus and the Red Sea and all that business, and they're, oh, yeah, that's really, that's really, really, really good. Yeah, okay, keep going. And so Stephen keeps going, and about... Verse 52, I think it is. It's in Acts chapter 7. You can read it this afternoon. About, 50, about verse 52, Stephen says, and he calls Jesus the righteous one. And at that, his Jewish audience, the text says, puts their hands over their ears and they begin to scream at him. Stop it. Stop it. And then they take Stephen out and stone him. Because the idea that there's a righteous one whose righteousness I need. Is an idea that the world hates. And then he comes to convict the world of judgment. Hey guys, have you ever heard the old adage about there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole? You ever heard that? There are no atheists in foxholes. You know that. <laughs> you know why? Because then when you're in a foxhole and you see enemy troops headed your way, you're all of a sudden convinced that that day of judgment has now drawn nigh for me. And there are people running around from pole to pole trying to convince their audiences that there's no such thing as a day of judgment. But you know better, don't you? You know there is one. And do you know why you know? Because the Holy Spirit of God has done his work convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. My friend, If you are convinced of your sin, 
Why will you not be cleansed of it? You know, we sing a song, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. What a, what a, what a, what a ghastly picture. You know, my wife has had things in her hands for two and a half weeks now. They've been drawing all kinds of stuff out of there. But a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. If you are convinced of your sin, why will you not plunge beneath that flood? Why? If if you're convinced of the beauty of holiness and the, the, the whole different standard of righteousness that causes you to conclude. Have you, have you come to the place where you finally realize that all of your sin will not satisfy you? Have you come there to know that all of my carousing and my drinking and my drugging and my playing around and my partying, none of that, none of it has brought a sense of satisfaction to my soul. If you are there, why will you not pursue a remedy? If you're convinced that there is a day of judgment, a day that you have long dreaded, a day that you try to not think about, a day that you try to lull yourself into believing that it will never happen, but down deep you know it will. If you are convinced of that day, why will you go on dreading it and not simply prepare for it? Okay, Dr. Young, how do I prepare for it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. Our Father, we, um, we thank you for the great comfort that is ours knowing that you have not, the, the Savior has not left us as orphans, that we are, um, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that is our our um, comfort. He is there to sustain and to enable and to guide and lead. Um, but Father, if you've led others here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, and yet under their, underneath it all, under their, all of the, um, their efforts to, to avoid and ignore and, and to, um, and to distract themselves from this 
this conviction that they are sinful and have not met the right standards and are facing a day of judgment. Lord, would you do that work and then add to that eyes to see and ears to hear that they might see the beauty of this Savior of ours? Would you draw one or four or seven or 19 people to the place where they see what I need more than the next breath that I take is that I need forgiveness of sin. And there is no place to get that except in Christ and Him crucified. That's a work, Father, that not a, no man can do. Only you must do it. We, we plead with you for the sake of Christ Jesus. Do it. Do that work multiple times, even now. And we... Um, We will forever bless you. And we make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.